Thank you so much for listening to this message. If you'd like to support the ministries of Rancho Church as we advance the cause of Christ together, you may do so at rancho.tv giving. Enjoy. Today we start Easter week, which we are very excited about. It's called Passion Week. It's called Holy Week. And we are doing an amazing uh, job this week putting together content that will bless your family, equip your family, strengthen your family, inspire your family. It is called Hope is Greater Than Fear. It's our Easter week here at Rancho. And here's what's gonna come down. Starting tomorrow morning at nine o'clock, we're gonna have daily programs at nine. And I'll be there kind of leading us through that Passion Week every day of the life of Christ that final week. And then um, this Thursday, we're gonna actually have our Last Supper service. It's one of our most popular and meaningful services of the year. Unfortunately, we can't meet as a family of faith for that last uh, supper meal, but we can in our homes. So Jenny and I are gonna lead a last supper meal at 7 p.m. It'll take about 15, 20 minutes. Gather your family, grab some wine, some juice if you don't have wine, grab some bread, and let's do the last supper meal together. And then on Friday, we're gonna have two events. One's gonna be at the regular time of 9 a.m. on Friday, uh, and that's the hour Jesus was crucified. Then we're gonna gather again at 3 p.m. online. Uh, That's when Jesus gave his life. That's when he breathed his last breath. So we're going to kind of bookmark the crucifixion of Jesus in powerful ways on Good Friday. Then Saturday at 9 9 a.m., we're going to enjoy that Saturday Sabbath, that day of rest, that day of loss, actually, in quiet where Jesus was in the tomb. And then on Easter Sunday, we're going to go all out, right here, live, all out on Easter. Even though the world around us is going through some difficulty, unprecedented difficulty, there's a lot to celebrate. And we'll talk about that through Easter, but we are gonna blow it out on Easter Sunday. It's gonna be an amazing time. Nine o'clock is Traditions Easter. Then we have 10 and 11 o'clock is our party. We are gonna celebrate and we wanna celebrate with you and invite everybody you know to join us. It is Easter week. And um, I got to thinking this week for the first time in my life, what does the word Easter even mean? I mean, I've kind of taken that word for granted since I've been born. I've heard this word, Easter, Easter, Easter. We weren't necessarily particularly a church-going family every week growing up, but we went on Easter, and I just thought, okay, it's Easter Sunday. But what is Easter? What does the word mean? So this week, first time in my life, I looked it up, and there's a couple of thoughts, um, but no one really knows the origin of the word. One thought is that it's the name of a god, a, a Saxon god of ancient times, uh, whose name was Esther or Easter. And, uh, and, and there was an author uh, about 7th century who wrote about this god and attributed Easter to that god. The scholarship of that article, uh, that writing, is very thin, and most people think that's probably not true. There's another origin for Easter, which is the old German word for East, which has connotations of spring and dawn and even resurrection. And so that early German word, which became old English word, is from the os or ester or oster. And here's the formula, that it's springtime. Springtime equals sun. Sun's starting to come earlier. That means that there's a dawn a dawn, a new dawn, which means new life is coming from where? The east. The east. Now, your TV, it may not be that way, but east. From the east is where sun comes. From the east is where light comes, right? An Italian poet wrote this 500 years ago. He says, the dawn breaks and all the Easter parts were full of life, light. 
And so knowing that the sun comes from the east, the eastern parts, the eastern sides of buildings, the eastern orchards, they get the light first, right? And, uh, and, and that's where Easter likely comes from. That's why Easter is known as a celebration. It's a celebration of the dawning of new light. And with new light comes new life. And why do we need new light? Because the world is dark. The world is dark. And we know that right now. Uh, probably unlike any other time in human history, we know that the world is dark. In fact, if you study human history, you will realize that what's going on right now in the world is unprecedented. You go through the entire course of human history, you will never see a time when the world was literally shut down. I mean, how astounding is it that this is New York City, this is Times Square during rush hour? Unprecedented. And this scene is every major city in the world. It's shut down. Unprecedented. Unemployment claims are 10 times higher than they've ever been, 10 times. Here, here's the, the chart. I don't know how much you could see it, but these are the, the unemployment claims over the last 13 years. And you'll see right here, this is the worst unemployment claim in the heart of the Great Recession in 2009. 665,000 unemployment claims. First week of the quarantine, 3.3 million. Second week, 6.6 million unemployment claims. This is astounding. It is unprecedented because the world is shut down. There are so many millions who have nothing to do. There's no jobs. Medical professionals are once again on the front lines, and God bless our medical professionals. They, they sign up for something that could be very risky every single day of their lives. But in a pandemic, a global pandemic, every single medical worker is taking on risks as well as their, their families. They know what they're getting into. They're getting in for selfless service, right? That's the oath that they take. And they walk right into work carrying some of those fears, carrying some of those concerns. In fact, uh, online on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Rancho United, uh, look, Midweek Connect. It's a program interviewing people uh, that are business people and finance people and medical people. We interviewed Dr. DeBoard. I've been a part of Rancho for quite some time, and he's an ER doctor locally. And he talks about kind of the mindset and, and the psyche and the determination of our medical professionals. So right where you are right now, would you just applaud our medical professionals? They're always on the front lines. Uh, if you look at the global crises and pandemics and diseases throughout the course of modern uh, history, they're always the ones in the front lines. So we thank them very, very much. Uh, as you're streaming online, give our medical professionals a, a shout out and just thank them for their selfless work. Now, all of us are going through our own issues. We're going through our own journeys with, uh, within our own spirits and within our own families. In fact, I was on a Zoom call um, a couple of days ago on Friday and it was about 20 people uh, from North America. And this is a team that's been together for two years. And we're working on a project that is due this month. And of course, uh, we're scrambling. And the deadline is looming. It's an immovable deadline. And we're working. Every week we're in this call and we're working this out. And it's, it, it's a lot. And, and of course, doing that in the midst of a pandemic brings its own challenges. And so what we did in our 90-minute call is took one hour of 90 minutes to just check in with each other. How are we doing? How is our environment? How are our families? What does our, our home, you know, sort of quarantine quarters look like? And over the course of that hour, we shared that human-to-human -human connection, but there were also a lot of tears shed. I would say of the 20 of us on the call, 12 to 15 of us were in tears at some point because we were just starting to know people who had passed away. And that grieves the heart. Two of them are single people living by themselves. 
And so they shared the deep loneliness that they're feeling because before this, they had their rhythms. They were living at home by themselves, but they had friends and family to connect and met in parks and activities and, and, and bars and restaurants. And they were living their life and, and being well-connected. And, and then this hits and they're by themselves and they're experiencing that crushing feeling of loneliness. For others, they have a worry or concern about elderly or sick people that they know and they love. In fact, a couple of them were the only caretakers of their elderly parents. And they were bearing the burden knowing that if their elderly parents get sick, it'll be because of them. So you can imagine the burden of that. Some of you are, are, are carrying the burden of that. And then there's differing opinions on when we get back to a normal, when we start reconnecting, how long it's going to take, what that new normal looks like. And so we just kind of shared that. And, and then, of course, we're all dealing with that, those fears in our own lives. You know, every little sniffle, every little cough, did I get it? And, and these things weigh pretty heavily. Maybe online in your comments, you could talk about the, your own fears that you are experiencing uh, through this pandemic. They're real. Um, it was the other day we were just kind of talking as a family around the house and around the table and dinner was getting ready. And we're talking about kind of the isolation and quarantining, what we can and can't do, new regulations coming in California. And then an earthquake hits. No joke, an earthquake hits. Now, thankfully, it wasn't a big one. Uh, just about 11 miles outside of town, it was less than 5.0, which in California is nothing. That's like a, you know, that's kind of fun. Um, but there was an earthquake and we looked at each other and just said, oh, you've got to be kidding me, right? Of all things, there's an earthquake and just kind of bracing, kind of half laughing, kind of half serious, you know, could something serious happen like an earthquake in the midst of all this, right? So we're all dealing with the fears and some of you are saying, okay, I've got enough. I've got the fear part. Thank you, Treadway. I got the fear part. Got it. It's a powerful force, isn't it? It can be all encompassing. It can be all consuming. Now, where does fear come from? There's been a lot of work on the source of fear. Psychologists have done a ton of work on this and here's what they say. The more control you want, the more out of control circumstances generate fear. And that makes sense, right? When we're in control of something, we don't feel fear. For example, when we're walking through an amusement park, we're in control. We're choosing that next step. We're choosing who we talk to. We're choosing where we engage. Then we get on a roller coaster and we're not in charge of anything, right? We're sitting there, we're strapped in. We're not in charge of anything. And so fear starts to kind of well up, right? Because that thing's about to go. We're about to go upside down, twist left and right. And we're not driving the thing. We are out of control. That's when fear rises. When we're watching a movie that might be a, a scary movie, it's because we don't know what's coming. We don't know what's down that dark hallway or behind that door, right? Or what's gonna pop out. Fear is about control. And you know as well as I do, during a pandemic, we're not in control. We can be as careful as we wanna be. We can be as careful as we should be. And we can wash and we can social distance and we can wear a mask when we go outside. We can do all that stuff, but really there's these invisible virus and we are not in control of that virus. So fear starts to rise. So here's, here's the point of Easter week. Easter is about overcoming fear because there is something greater than fear that we're gonna celebrate over the next seven, eight days. There is this greater than sign here. There's something here that is gonna be greater than this. So even when we feel this, it's not gonna overwhelm us. It's not gonna overcome us. There's something greater than fear. Isaiah 40, 31 says very famously, those who hope in the Lord will find new strength. It's a promise. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. 
This is the promise of God. Now, this was written during a time of great fear, of great trouble, of great war. But God says, listen, you can hope in the Lord. And if you hope in the Lord, you will not be overcome by fear. You will have strength. You will soar. You will have energy. You'll walk. You won't faint. You'll make it. You'll endure. You'll do it, right? And so what's the formula? Hope is greater than fear. Hope is greater than fear. Now, hope comes in two forms. And this, there's a little controversy here about what biblical hope is, but hope really comes in two forms. Hope can either be a wish or a promise. Hope can either be a wish or a promise. Let's talk about a wish first. A wish is something that you are, are, are guessing might happen, and if it does happen, you're going to be very excited about that, right? So, for example, I hope that we have Mexican food tonight. That's my hope. I have no idea if we're going to have Mexican food tonight, but I'm wishing we have Mexican food tonight and tomorrow morning and tomorrow afternoon and tomorrow night. I'm, just, I'm a Mexican food addict. I'm telling you, when this quarantine is over, I am going to single-handedly make sure that every taco shop in this valley thrives with business because I am just going to go for it every day, right? I love Mexican food. I'm hoping, wishing we're going to have Mexican food tonight. I hope that things will get back to normal pretty soon for the sake of businesses and families, right? That's a hope. It's a wish. I have very little idea what that might look like or when, but I'm hopeful for that. I'm hopeful that I'm going to stay healthy along with my family. That's a wish. It's a hope, doing everything we possibly can to stay healthy. But you never quite know. These are wishes, right? Uh, there's a few religious leaders, and I'm just apologizing to the world for them, who say this about hope. Our hope is in God, so therefore let's meet together. In a time of pandemic, our hope is in God, therefore let's meet together and maybe he'll save us from the virus. That is just frankly not the way it works, and I apologize to the world for them. It's irresponsible, right? A sort of wishful hoping, but it's not a sure promise. It's just something that we wish for. And so I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. God usually doesn't bless dumb decisions. Sometimes what we hope for isn't necessarily the smartest or most reasonable thing. But there is a better hope, a biblical hope that's not about a wish or wishful thinking. There is a biblical hope that is a sure and certain promise, a sure and certain promise. And, and so I, I want you, as you're even online, to make a comment about how you experience the sure promises of God and what those sure promises are. Not wishful thinking, but what God has guaranteed, particularly through Jesus. And here it is. Our hope, our sure promise, is in the presence of a loving, forgiving, and good God who has good plans for this world he loves. That's our promise. That's our hope. Isn't that exciting? That there's a good God, he's loving, forgiving, and he has good plans for this world. Now, what's happening right now around us isn't good. There's a lot of terrible tragedies happening around us, and our heart breaks, and we pray for the world around us. We pray for our leaders and the medical professionals. But we know that in all this... God is working good. That's a promise. That's a hope that we can rest our lives upon, right? Even online, there are, are comments happening about what, what is the plan of God through this? And how are we going to be different as people? How are we going to be better as families, better as communities, better as, as churches, better followers of Christ? How's the world going to be better? Because God is moving forward a good plan even when things around us aren't good. This is hope that is greater than fear. Now, this hope that Jesus gave us was delivered during Passion Week. 
It was delivered during Passion Week. Now, Passion Week is from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. That's the passion of Christ. And the reason why it's called Passion Week is because through Jesus, we know the passion of God. And the passion of God was moved forward between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. And that passion of God is to bring hope in the context of fear. And that hope would be greater than fear. So we would emerge from any conflict in any season of fear, better people, better followers of Christ, moving forward the passion of God. So Jesus gave us that hope during Passion Sunday. Now, I'm going to put it this way. And some of you can make some comments about how this particularly strikes you because this is going to strike you kind of funny here. The hope of God through Jesus came through a calculated and powerful social rebellion which began on Palm Sunday. I'm gonna read that again because you may not have heard of Palm Sunday that we're celebrating right now. You might not heard of Palm Sunday in these terms, but this is absolutely the truth. The hope of God through Jesus came through a calculated and powerful social rebellion which began on Palm Sunday. Now, if you're thinking about Palm Sunday, you might go back to your Sunday school classes and when you were a kid and, I don't know, for those of you who are a little older, those felt boards or picture books or, you know, crayon drawings, whatever you were doing. And you might have an image of Palm Sunday that looks something like this, right? It looks very quaint and cartoonish. And you have all these kind of glowing, oddly white uh, faces <laughs> that are just this picture of, of pleasantries and every face is smiling and the children are out there and they're playing. This doesn't look like a social rebellion, but that is exactly what Jesus was doing. He was moving forward a social rebellion on Palm Sunday. It wasn't like this, I guarantee you. It wasn't like that. In fact, Jesus was not some unaware victim of plots of religious leaders or political leaders to, to kill him. He knew exactly what he was doing and he knew exactly the price that would be paid for his rebellion. He was going to go into the city of Jerusalem. He was gonna confront the political leaders. He was gonna confront the religious people. He was gonna confront everybody who was oppressing other human beings in the name of God or in the name of money. He was gonna tear it down and we'll see here in, uh, tomorrow, literally tearing down the temple to show how serious God was about making sure that everybody, particularly the poor, particularly the marginalized, particularly those who are kind of pushed away from religion or pushed away from God or judge, that those people understood the love and care and grace and forgiveness of God. He was tearing down every barriers, figuratively and literally tearing them down because he was committed to this cause. He was committed to this rebellion. That's what Palm Sunday was all about. In fact, in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus says exactly what he's going to face. He was going up to Jerusalem and he said, we're gonna to go to Jerusalem and people were trying to stop him. He says, we're gonna to go to Jerusalem where the son of man will be betrayed. They will sentence him to die. They will hand him over to the Romans to be mocked, flogged with a whip and crucified. He knew this was coming and he walked into the city anyway. He was not an unaware victim. He was a rebel who was going in there to tear down the religious and political authorities and to bring grace and freedom and life to people who were marginalized and ultimately to the world. It was a calculated rebellion. Now we know what calculated rebellions can do. Calculated rebellions 
can change the world. Here's just a few. Here's the Boston Tea Party, right? Boston Tea Party in 1773. And this is when the American colonists were rebelling against the British. Uh, Obviously started this great American experiment that we're enjoying now. There's uh, Gandhi's Salt March of 1930, again, rebelling against taxation and occupiers. This led the whole Freedom of India movement. Uh, South Africa's National Day of Protest started the anti-apartheid movement, which we know uh, ended up uh, eliminating apartheid. A March on Washington, August 28, 1963, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech uh, brought the Civil Rights Act. Uh, the Berlin Wall protests of 1989, this is sort of my early memories of how the course of history can be changed through protest. Berlin Wall falls, Iron Curtain falls, the Soviet Union falls. And then there's the Me Too protests of 2017. Now, many of you may not agree with every tenant or every speaker in the Me Too movement, but it brought to the light this abuse of women that continues and the inequalities that women experience. And so these social movements do a lot to move forward the world in powerful ways. But nothing moved forward the world like the rebellion that Jesus did on Palm Sunday. It was an outright courageous rebellion. In fact, I'll put it this way. The most influential act of bold, courageous, and radical social rebellion was from Jesus Christ on the day he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. This was the greatest, most influential act of social rebellion in human history. I defy anyone to tell me a rebellion that had more impact than what Jesus did on Palm Sunday when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Powerful rebellion. Now, on the way to Jerusalem... Jesus knew what he was getting into. He knew that he was committed. In fact, he said, I'm compelled, I have to go to Jerusalem. This this priority of, of God to bring freedom and to bring hope and to bring forgiveness and new life and eternal life to the world was so powerful in his life that he knew he had to go into Jerusalem and he knew he would die for the cause because there is a cause that Jesus Christ lived for and died for. It's a rebellious cause that was pushing against the political authorities and the religious authorities that were victimizing people. The rebellious cause was known. In fact, right before Jesus went to Jerusalem, he had this incredible interaction with the crowds, but particularly one man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a much hated tax collector. This was a Jew hired by the Romans to steal from the Jews to give to the Romans to occupy and oppress the Jews. You get that? I mean, he's a bad guy. And everybody hated the tax collector. But he was drawn to Jesus. He was drawn to grace. He was drawn to forgiveness. And so he gets up on a tree and tries to see Jesus. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house tonight. Once again, Jesus hanging out with sinners. Once again, Jesus befriending people, religious people judged. And so this murmuring came, happened all the time in the life of Jesus. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be with the guest of a sinner. This is what got Jesus killed. He was such a threat to the religious elite because he was hanging out with people that they marginalized. He hung out with them. And here's what Jesus said a little bit later. The son of man came to seek and save that which was lost. This is the mission of Jesus. This is the cause of Christ to seek and save what was lost. Anybody who feels marginalized, anyone who is poor or sick or outcast or lonely, anybody labeled a sinner, these are the lost that Jesus came to find. Jesus came to seek them and he came to save them. Now, what does salvation mean? Salvation means a lot. I don't want to oversimplify this, but I don't have a ton of time. Salvation means a lot. When Jesus said to somebody, 
you are loved by God. When Jesus befriended them, that's salvation. Salvation is befriending lost people. Salvation is letting them know they're loved, not just with words, but with action. That's salvation. Salvation is letting people know that they have a partner to walk with in life, that this life is a journey and it's a journey of friendship. It's a journey of overcoming things in life, over, overcoming mistakes, overcoming bad choices, overcoming difficult circumstances and, and, and leading us to a better place. That's salvation. Salvation is letting somebody know that God loves them and cares for them and forgives them unconditionally and they don't need to do anything to earn it. That is salvation. That's called the good news or the gospel. Salvation is letting people know that your life is a life of union with God, not based on you, but based on what God did for you. You are united with God now, and here's the really cool part, forever. Now and forever. So this is eternal life. This is life that is full and rich and deep, but also never ends. This is salvation. That's the passion of Christ. That's the cause of Christ. That's the cause of the rebellion, to seek and save what was lost. So there's a rebellious cause. There's also a rebellious act. There's a rebellious act. And that rebellious act was when Jesus walked in on a donkey into Jerusalem. In fact, here's how the story goes in Luke 19.30. Jesus said to some of his disciples, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. Jesus is starting to get really serious here. He's saying, I am the Lord. And, and this word has, uh, Kairos, has a lot of implications to it. You could call another human being Lord. This would be somebody who has, say, a lofty position, big land ownership, something like that. You can call another person Lord. But in this context, in the Luke 19 context, when Jesus is, is healing people and he's speaking in the name of God, when he says, Lord, he's referring to nothing less than the authority of God. And to set himself up as the authority of God means he's even superior to the emperor of Rome. He's superior to the governor of Rome. He's superior to the local authorities in Jerusalem. He is the Lord. This is an overt act of rebellion, calling himself the Lord. Now he gets this donkey and he's about to ride in to Jerusalem. Now, this is important. This is the week before Passover. Passover is the Jewish celebration of freedom from slavery in Egypt. So you can imagine Rome is now enslaving the Jews and they're about to celebrate their freedom from Egypt who was enslaving the Jews. So this was a politically tense time, the most politically tense time of the year in the Jewish calendar. So what would happen? Rome would send the governor. Rome would send Pontius Pilate with an army to walk the streets of Jerusalem to keep the peace. This is how Pontius Pilate rode in to Jerusalem. He's on a stallion. There's a regalia around him, probably a thousand soldiers behind him. And he rode in in the dramatic west entrance of Jerusalem, riding on stallions that represent the power of the Roman Empire, the power of human authority, the power of war and oppression, and Pilate comes in through the West Gate, this glorious West Gate. Right around the same time, Jesus rides in, not on a stallion of war, but on a beast of humility. And he rides in the humble East Gate. But they're riding in both about the same time. Do you see the political statement here? Do you see the rebellious act? Jesus says, I'm coming as one kind of king. Pontius Pilate comes in as another kind of king and they're meeting in Jerusalem. 
This was an overtly rebellious act. It was an intentional rebellion against the Roman authorities. And, and, and you're playing with fire because if there's any hint of rebellion against Roman authorities, they will crucify you without even batting an eye. You're crucified. And here's what happened in John chapter 12. The next day, uh, news got out that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem. It swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down to the road to meet him. They shouted, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the what? King. Hail to the king. Now, Rome had nothing to do with any kind of rebellion. You were crushed if you would dare to confront Rome by claiming you're a king. But not only did Jesus confront the Roman authorities, he confronted the religious authorities. Matthew chapter 21, verse 15. When the chief priests and the scribes, these religious elites, saw the wonderful things that he did, and how the children sang Hosanna to the son of David, they were sorely displeased. It's an understatement. They sought to kill him. Why? Hosanna means king, save us. Son of David means savior, Messiah. The Jewish leaders were looking for the savior, Messiah. They were looking for a man of war. Here comes a man of peace, claiming to be the son of David, the savior, Messiah. And they wanted him gone. He was such an annoyance because they wanted power. In their minds, if a man of war came in, they would be in the, the generals of the army. They would be in the highest places of power and authority and money, right? Here comes Jesus saying the kingdom of heaven is about humility and service and love. They wanted nothing to do with him. Jesus intentionally confronted the Roman authorities. He intentionally confronted the religious authorities. This was so calculated. He knew what he was getting into. He wasn't unaware. He wasn't unaware that this would cost him his life. In fact, this was a planned, sophisticated, calculated, defiant, rebellious act that would include terrible tragedy, especially on Friday when he was crucified and eternal hope, especially on Sunday when he walks out of the tomb. This is quite a week. This is the Passion Week, and I can't wait to walk this whole thing uh, through with you. There was a rebellious cause, a rebellious act of Palm Sunday, riding into Jerusalem. Finally, there was a rebellious movement, a rebellious movement. Jesus wasn't alone. He wasn't just riding in, he and a donkey. There were thousands of people around him. There was a movement. Thousands of followers from the north in Galilee met thousands of followers in the south in Jerusalem, and they all converged on that Sunday, on that Palm Sunday, it was a movement of people. Luke 19.36 says this. As Jesus went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully praising God in loud voices for the great things they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Thousands of people participating in rebellion. These children who weren't there in you know, little cute Sunday school you know, garb with glowing faces, they were singing songs of rebellion. Children saying, this is the true king, not the emperor of Rome. This is the true authority, not these religious leaders. This was an act of rebellion among thousands from all generations. And what did they do? They laid down their cloaks and they waved palm branches. What is a cloak? Well, we're not really aware of what a cloak is in our time. I just grabbed something from the house that sort of looks like a cloak. Um, but a cloak meant everything to the Jewish people. This was sort of the, the attire of the ancient world. 
And, uh, you know, for us, we have a certain kind of uh, style in our clothes, and our clothes say something about who we are or our status symbol. The cloak did the same thing for the Jews. It also had various, you know, pockets in utility, usefulness for the cloak for whatever work they were involved in. Uh, it also was their, their prayer garment as well. Uh, they would put this over their head and they would pray. I can't do that right now because uh, we're online with thousands and uh, my hair's in a fragile state right now. I haven't had a haircut in a long time. I think my wife's gonna give me one here tomorrow. That could be very, very scary. I've seen her work. But uh, the cloak was put over your, over your head and you would lift up your head to pray. So the cloak was really your identity. It was really your identity. And so when they took off their cloaks, and laid them on the ground in front of Jesus, what were they saying? They were saying to Jesus, my life is yours. My life is yours. And then they took palm branches and I have a couple of palm trees at home and uh, so I chopped this down. Um, palm branches, very much common in the ancient Near East. And they were waving palm branches. Now what does a palm branch symbolize in ancient world? It symbolizes peace. So as Pontius Pilate went through this glorious west gate with, with, with thoughts of war and threats and swords, Jesus comes through the east gate on a donkey in humility and peace. No swords, just palm branches, the symbol of peace. And so what do we do today? Let's do the same thing the crowd did. Let's be a part of this rebellious movement. And it's not a rebellious movement that's about politics and let's win the political wars and let's win the legislative wars. Hey, listen, politics is important. Political leaders are important. Legislation is important. That is not the kingdom of, of heaven. It is not. It's important. Those men and women are called by God to do what they do as we all are called by God to do what we do. But the kingdom of heaven is not about earthly authority. The kingdom of heaven is not about warfare. It is not about violence. It is not about weaponry. That is not the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is not about religion. It is not about religious rules and vast systems of doctrines and practices. It is not about religion. It is not about human government. Jesus came to, into Jerusalem to tear that down, to have something new rise again. And what rises again is, is a whole new people, a whole new family who have laid their cloaks before Jesus and say, I am yours. I follow you, Jesus. And I want to be a person of peace Here's my cloak. Here's my palm branch. And some of you online are already asking the question, what does it mean to be a person of peace? What does it mean to be an agent of peace so that we're not just receiving the gift of God through Jesus Christ? We're not just receiving peace with God by knowing with a sure hope that we're forgiven, that there's nothing between us and God, that peace that surpasses understanding, even in the midst of a pandemic, we can be at peace inside. We are one with God, we're forgiven, we're good with God. He's with us, will never leave us, will never forsake us. But that peace, that palm branch can also spill over to our family. And we can say, God, would you allow me to be a person of peace in my home? Home life can be tense, especially when we've got cabin fever and we're kind of snapping at each other and little things are annoying each other. I mean, just yesterday, our family had a little fight about how long we've been in quarantine. And there was a big debate. We didn't even know what day of the week it was, what month it was barely. And we're having this argument about how many weeks and days we've been in. I think it's still unsettled. I think the number is three weeks, four days, three days. Anyway, we're fighting about it. We're tense, right? It's kind of fun, but voice is raised. Let's be peaceful. Let's be people of peace. Let's give that peace to our neighbors. Let's pick up our phones. Let's FaceTime, let's text, let's call, let's connect. Let's enjoy the peace of God 
and let's give the peace of God this Easter. Let's pray. God, thank you for the great gift of peace and love that you give us through Jesus Christ. Thank you that we're forgiven, unconditionally forgiven. You just decided, I'm not gonna count your sins, your failures, your flaws against you. I'm just gonna forgive you. And you gave Jesus Christ, your only son, the fullness of divinity to pay the price to be swallowed up by those sins and to rise again from the dead to give new and eternal life to all. As that message goes out, bring peace to us. We lay our cloaks down before you. Also help us to bring peace to the world. We bring our palm branches to you. We don't just want to experience that peace, we want to be agents of peace, bringing peace to our home, to our neighborhoods. And when we emerge from this pandemic, that we would be more peaceful as people, more peaceful communities, a more peaceful world, realizing that love is in fact the greatest law, as Jesus said. And the world could then be a part of this rebellion to the point where the world becomes more in line with the kingdom of heaven, where we experience your peace and we give your peace to one another selflessly and sacrificially. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. For some of you, that may have been your first prayer to lay your cloaks down before Jesus. Welcome to the, the family of faith. I also wanna give you just a little bit of a reminder on what we're doing. Nine o'clock every morning through Easter week. I'll see you through every streaming platform that you're experiencing right now. Thursday night for Last Supper at 7 p.m. Friday at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. for Good Friday. Saturday, we'll have a 9 a.m. Sabbath, short Sabbath segment. And then Easter Sunday, it's gonna be awesome. Invite everyone you know, join us. Nine o'clock traditions, 10, 11 o'clock and 6.30 p.m. We're gonna celebrate all that God is doing. Thanks for joining us.